ethos of competition is better, faster, stronger. We see it in every aspect of business, life, and of course, sports. More specifically, the Olympic Games. And in 2020, where we saw what the world looked like without sports, we saw what a society looks like without rooting for a common goal. Hello again, Blythe Bromley with DigitalDispatch.io, and this story took me close to 10 hours of research in order to write a little over 10 minutes worth of content. That's the route I chose as it's kind of fun to take an idea like this and push myself to create something out of a topic I admittedly knew very little about. With all that said, it was interesting to dive into the logistics of the Tokyo Olympics and how that has evolved and continues to evolve days before the opening ceremonies and even as events are still going on. This story does pair well with the show notes, so be sure to check those out for any visuals that I'm referring to, which reminds me, I'm going to start pasting my episode scripts directly in the show notes to give that extra insight into not only where I pull my research from, but to show what the FreightWaves graphics team uses to show during the video portion of Cyberly, which is where segments like today's episode come from. If you like this new idea of pasting my scripts into the show notes, be sure to let me know so I can plan to do this more often. But I've babbled enough, so let's not waste any more time. Here's the logistics and history behind the Tokyo Olympics. But into our first topic, I want to dive into the logistics of the Tokyo Olympics. But first, we got to take it back a little bit with a little bit of a history lesson. So the first known Olympics were held in 776 BC. The ancient Olympic Games were initially a one-day event until 684 BC. And the ancient games, including running, the long jump, the shot put, javelin, box, boxing was actually one. Equestrian events was another one. And then another sport, pancreation, which is a martial art mix of boxing and wrestling, in case you wanted to save yourself from a Google search, because I literally just looked that up right before the show. But city-states would declare truces just so their athletes could participate in the games, and 5% of freeborn men would make this trek to the Temple of Zeus in Olympia, where athletes competed naked as a tribute to the Greek god Zeus, because they wanted to show Zeus their physical power and muscular physique, and it also helped with intimidating other competitors. So these Olympics ended in 394 AD because they were seen as pagan celebrations. And then the games were officially brought back in 1896 in Athens, Greece. And then finally, in 1924, the Winter Olympics were born. And now that has begun the cycle of alternating between the summer and winter sports. So fast forward to the Tokyo Olympic Games and the process of getting the Olympics has evolved. This is a process that has been 10 years in the making when Japan first submitted their Olympic proposal. And for context, Game of Thrones was entering its first season on HBO in order to give a little bit of a background of how long this process has been going on. So once that approval process is completed, then construction begins. And there's a tremendous amount of effort to manage the transportation and facilities of the people in general. And now from the people aspect, 41,000 non-athletes. So think about all of these people that are coming into town, not only coming into town, but actually are managing the entire process. And that's operations, construction, facility, media, etc. So 41,000 non-athletes and then 11,000 
athletes. Actually, it's a little bit more than 11,000 athletes. These two groups alone would have taken up nearly all of the, or nearly half of all available hotel space over in Tokyo. And so to combat that, originally they were planning on 600,000 tourists coming to Tokyo and they were going to bring in cruise ships in order to help with hotel space. But obviously with the tourists not being allowed to come into the country of Japan and sit in the stands and actually watch these events, that's been shifted a little bit. So now the Olympic Committee really only has to manage the, the close to what, oh, just a little over uh, or close to 60,000 people. So from the logistics aspects, there's different phases of logistics, of Olympic logistics. So you have to, there's the establishment phase, there's the resupply phase, and then there's the recovery phase. Now, and then there's also within each of those little, not little, but they're very vast phases that you have to, to manage over the course of the last 10 years. But you also have to protect the confidentiality of any technology, of any equipment, of the processes that are going on in all of these different Olympic sites. Then you have to have power and independent backup power for all of the media and the tech and security. And this is all in a 243 page document that the, that the host city has to agree and has to abide by set. These terms are set by the IOC. And so major areas to think about are the location of these facilities. Japan had to decide whether to build new or use temporary space or to refurbish a current space. There are dozens of these facilities all in and around the city of Tokyo, many of them acting like many cities with residential, housing, banking, food, laundry, hair salon, even a dedicated area for mourning. Now, the concentration of people to supplies, there's the space needed for the people and the space needed for the supplies to fuel these many cities within a city. So let's take the, the 2016 Olympic Games in Brazil, for example. The Olympic Games used 32,000 table tennis balls, 400 soccer balls, 8,400 badminton balls, 250 golf carts, 54 boats, 80,000 chairs, 70,000 tables, 29,000 mattresses, 60,000 hangers, 6,000 TV sets, and 1,000 smartphones. And now keep in mind, this was back in 2016. So here we are, the 2020 Olympics technically taking place in 2021. It's probably going to increase, especially when you look at that number of the 29,000 mattresses. I know most of you have probably heard that story about the, the mattresses made out of cardboard boxes that are all of the Olympic athletes are now sleeping on, but more than 11,000 of them are, are of those custom mattresses are, are being used for the Olympic athletes. Now think about all of this plus the COVID impact. And that adds another layer to the already complex logistics situation that everyone is dealing with. They haven't even, they, they haven't even completely ruled out canceling the Olympics at the last moment. But in my opinion, I doubt that actually will happen with all of the athletes in Japan already. So even without the live fans, there's still a huge opportunity from a digital perspective. The sheer price tag of hosting the Olympics and moving them back a year is staggering. At $26 billion, this is already going to be the most expensive Olympics ever in history. But advertising and possible future tourism dollars are really the only aspects where the country could see a positive return. So thinking of it from an advertising and marketing side of things, 76000 
or 76,000, 76% of the Olympics revenue comes from broadcasting rights. NBC Universal is the one that has the broadcasting rights here in the U.S., and they expect to, its broadcast to attract even more than 120 advertisers at a 20% increase from the 2016 games, and that's per adage. Now, but they'll have to make addition, they'll have to make up for those additional advertisers. Even Toyota earlier this week, they announced that they were pulling out all of their advertising. And this is also in addition to McDonald's no longer being the fast food, food of choice over in the Olympic Village, which was extremely popular, especially among the non US based athlete crowd that shows up and, and, and just wants to get that taste of American fast food. So obviously there's a health conflict, a conflict of interest there. So McDonald's, I think it was about three years ago that they decided that they were no longer going to be the official uh, food provider within the Olympic Village, which quick little side note, they provided all of that food in the Olympic Village for free. So I thought that that was a pretty fascinating tell as well. Now, it, also, with this advertising and marketing strategy, it brings in the importance of telling stories with broadcasting. The broadcast building itself is now the most important facility in out of them all. And Windover Productions has a fantastic video on this, on the incredible logistics of the Olympics. I, I suggest you, highly suggest you all go watch that. But in this video, they talked about how OBS, which is a, the host broadcaster for all Olympic events, they are an open source platform that anyone can use. You can go download OBS right now and you can use it as your broadcast software, but they are the official host broadcaster for all Olympic events. And they're responsible for each of these broadcast feeds with, with some incredible numbers because the networks that even though they have the broadcasting rights, NBC isn't out here sending a camera crew to all of the different events. OBS is actually handling that. And they're responsible for 8,100 broadcast employees during the games. They're capturing an estimated 9,500 hours of content. Then they're sending that to 64 world feeds that are then sent to official broadcast sponsors like NBC. Now, at these 42 venues, more than 1,000 cameras and 3,600 microphones will be used. And the broadcast center is acting as a 24-7 operation, which is essentially also acting as a mini small town where they have places to sleep, to eat, to, to do your laundry, all of these different things within that main broadcast center, which has now become, because of COVID, the central point of all storytelling. Now, no fans means no families in the stands themselves. So they're going to have to get a little creative with the digital celebrations because that's going to be that in-person band-aid. Preston McKellen, he is the player content director for the PGA Tour, told me how they handled fanless PGA events in 2020 by saying, you got to try to showcase more of the overall experience. And that's a big part of it. More camera angles. Also think about different styles of content to reach people where they want to consume it. And then make sure fans feel invited to watch. That's how they handled the fanless PGA Tour events. Now, I have a prediction that it's probably going to be a very similar to how the NFL draft used families in that at-home viewing experience in order to showcase what that emotional journey looks like for when a player gets drafted. This is the Olympics. I don't have to tell a lot of people that the Olympics is the major milestone of how these athletes they've trained their entire lives for. And so for the families that have likely been the ones that are driving 
that athlete to and from all of their different practices since the time that they were a little kid. That's the opportunity where you you really want the families involved. And so I suspect that they're going to have some capabilities where they're recording the families at home. And then if the footage, if they win, if the footage is good, then they're going to showcase that and, and broadcast that out to their various partners. So I think that that's probably the route that they're going to take. But the storytelling is what's going to be the most impactful here. So not only do we have the new sports debuting, and that is surfing. You also have skateboarding. You have sport climbing, which is kind of like a super fast rock climbing. Then you have three-on-three basketball, which is, it looks incredible. They're only playing with one hoop instead of two hoops on each side of the court. They're playing with one hoop and it's three-on-three. Then karate is also making its Olympic debut. And then the making the comeback is women's softball, which you might have seen has already kind of gotten started a couple days ago. If you're watching this show live on, on Thursday of, of the Olympics week, they, the softball already made its, its grand comeback to the Olympics. So Tokyo originally submitted a bid for the Olympics after the, the devastation to the entire country of Japan, Japan. If you remember about the earthquake, that was more than 10 years ago. And they argue, especially the mayor of Tokyo at the time, that they did this in order to restore civic and national pride. And now that the entire world has gone through a pandemic together, the world needs something to collectively cheer about. And that's what makes the Olympics so important to society. Now, just take a look at one of these displays that we're actually showing off on, on the screen right now. That's been in the making since 1964, where every country brought seeds. Those seeds were planted and grown. And then the wood used from those seeds was crafted into Olympic rings from each, each country and then put on display all around the world. It, it really is from a visual perspective and just to think how long this has been in the making that really goes to show the level of details that goes into the logistics of the Olympics from all facets of the operation. Now, thinking about from the athletes who have trained their entire lives for a moment, athletes thrive on routine. And the last year has been anything but routine, but their desire to win for pride is what fills our competitive spirit and keeps our soul, you know, sort of wanting to be that better, faster, stronger, that competition aspect that we talked about earlier in the show. And it's also why many companies will focus on recruiting former athletes, or they'll focus on people who are really big sports fans, because that that competition fuels successes in other areas of our lives. So just take a look at some of the stories that have come out of the Olympics just over the, the last few, not few years, but over the last, you know, say couple of decades. Kelly Holmes is one of the first ones. Kelly Holmes of the UK. She has battled multiple injuries. She struggled with mental health problems, but she never gave up on those on on that dream and won two Olympic gold medals in track and field. Another story that was really captivating as I was doing research for this is Abby Diascatino. I'm not pronouncing that right, so forgive me, but she's of the U.S. and she was helped by Nikki Hamblin of Australia when she failed dur or when she fell during an event. Obviously, that that instance didn't result in the outcome that she wanted to. But what was on display here is that sportsmanship that everyone loves to see from the Olympics. Now, seeing athletes like this 
also inspires the next generation. Just like this little girl that you can see here where her dad is helping her practice a routine, just like the gymnast Ali Reisman. It's an, it, these types of stories are incredible to see because it's through the lens of inspiring future generations and inspiring people from all over the world. And finally, I want to play this next video from Derek Redman, proving that you can never fail if you continue to move forward. Send this video to someone to give them some motivation to keep trying. This is Derek Redman, a British sprinter who was favored to medal in the 400-meter Olympic sprint. Nearly halfway through the race, Derek came to a stop because of a severe injury. Derek fell to the ground in agony because he had just torn his hamstring. However, he got back up. As he continued the race limping, a man came down from the stadium and broke past security. He then rushed to Derek's side to help him finish. This man was his father. He said, you don't have to do this. And the son replied, yes, I do. So he said, well, then we're going to finish this together. As they crossed the finish line together, nearly 70,000 people gave them a standing ovation, teaching us that you can never fail if you continue to move forward. What a powerful video. It still brings tears to my eyes as I was watching this because you see all these great moments of Olympic athletes. And, and, and oftentimes, what are the more powerful stories is, is when you see a sign of, of what he would probably initially consider as a failure, but that story right there resonates with you and resonates with generations for years to come. So those are the kind of stories that come out of the Olympics. And I, it, it makes the experience so vital and so important and just competition in general, because what is competition if not for the Olympics persevering? These are the important stories to share. And out of the thousands of people, no matter their demographic, who come together to make this event happen, th this is... This is what makes us human, and this is what drives us. So the opening ceremony gets started on Friday at 6.55 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, airing on NBC for a period of 16 days, and then they'll follow that up with the closing ceremonies. And that's also where the broadcasting opportunity is going to come into play, because usually the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies are the opportunity for that host city to really show off why people could come and visit and, and, and why they were chosen to be a host city to begin with. So it's just really powerful storytelling that I hope that we'll be able to, to continue to see all throughout the 16 days of the Olympics that get started tomorrow, Friday at 6.55 a.m. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Digital Dispatch Podcast. As always, you can find each show I publish along with more insight over on my website, digitaldispatch.io. If you like this podcast, then I think you'll love another show that I host, Cyberly, which covers the attention economy, B2B marketing, tech, and how it all ties into the world of logistics. That show airs every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, live on FreightWaves TV. There are also some links to my social media accounts along with my products and services that might be of interest to you. You can find them in the show notes or again over on my website at digitaldispatch.io. If you found this episode interesting and or entertaining, be sure to share it with a friend. Word of mouth is the best kind of marketing and since podcast discoverability has and remains an issue in this medium, I trust and rely on folks like yourself that will share it with those who would also find it useful. Until next time, my name is Blythe Bromley, and I will see you real soon.